Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question is all about God's mysterious and bloody covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 15. We're also going to read through Nehemiah chapter 4, Acts chapter 14, and Matthew chapter 14. I do want to invite you to check out our website every day. We are putting show notes and a little bit of extra material there. It's BibleReadingPodcast.com. BibleReadingPodcast.com. We just started that site in January and already it's got nearly 30,000 words on it. So there's a lot of material there. Um, and it's all free for the taking or the reading or what have you. I also want to encourage you to leave some reviews. I mention that a lot, but it's a good way to let people know about the show and share it on social media and all of that kind of good stuff. Today we have a fascinating situation in Genesis 15 whereby God and Abram make a covenant. We also have some deep, deep encouragement from Acts chapter 14. Builders rebuilding the walls in Nehemiah 4 with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. That's a shout out to Charles Spurgeon, who had a magazine that he put out for many years called The The Sword and the Trowel. And also, two of Jesus' most well-known parables, of course, the feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on the water. And our big Bible question of the day, as I mentioned, is why does Abram cut animals in half to make a covenant with God? That seems incredibly strange also a little bit brutal. But before we try to answer it, let's get to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky, count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. And suddenly, great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions, but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, 
For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So Genesis chapter 15 is monumental in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the beginning of the story of God's people, the Israelites. It's the beginning of his promise to bless the descendants of Abram and cause them to flourish. No less than three books in the New Testament refer directly to verse 6, where it says that Abram believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. This is one of the absolute pillar and foundational verses of New Testament faith. Religion in almost every other sector of the world, almost every religion you can think think of that's not Christianity, has always been about earning your way to God. It's essentially, metaphorically, God is on the mountain, so to speak, and religion serves as a series of rules or actions that are designed to please the deity and elevate human status with whatever God that they might be seeking to please. Religion is about doing actions. Do these actions and God will be happy with you. Do not do these actions or God will be very angry with you. To be clear, in Christianity, there are certainly commands and warnings also. But the core of Christianity is belief or faith, not works. Abram believed God and such a belief was added to his account to make him righteous in the eyes of God. What did Abram do here in this massively important covenant episode? He fell asleep. He didn't do anything. God alone walked through the several severed animals, making the agreement. But even though Abram did no action, it was still credited as righteousness to him because he had faith in God's promises. Now, Paul, all the way in the New Testament, the book of Romans, which is going to be a book we're going to read through very soon, discusses this in depth in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, like Job, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owned. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. That's amazing. Christianity is not about working to make God happy with us or doing things to make God save us and give us life eternal in heaven. And the fact of the matter, it can't be about those things because God demands perfection and none of us are capable of it. Christianity is about believing what has already been done for us by Jesus. And therefore, Abram, Abraham, is also our father, even those of us who are Gentiles, born in a nation, not Israel. Not merely because he was in the line and genealogy of Jesus, but primarily because he was apparently the first to explicitly believe God in a way that it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul continues in the rest of Romans 4. He, Abraham, 
did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's Romans 4, 19 through 25. And this, my friends, this is the absolute core of the Christian faith. Heaven is for perfect people with absolutely impeccable righteousness. But all humans have sinned somehow, some way. I mean, honestly, we sin every day. But all of us have sinned just countless times. And therefore, we've fallen short of being able to get into heaven on our own merits. I mean, you might think, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm better than most. And sure, you might be. But you're not perfect. And that's the thing. Heaven is for perfection. And none of us can attain perfection even the best of us. But, thanks be to God, if we believe in God and his resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised to make us right with God, then we will have that perfect righteousness credited to our account by faith. That opens the doors to heaven and eternal life. That is the core of Christianity. It's not what you do to be saved, but your faith in what Jesus has done for you. So Abram believed God's promise, and then God went a step further. He made a covenant, as solemn a promise as there can be with Abram. The, the way this covenant is made is fascinating, maybe even disturbing. And Honestly, it's supposed to be disturbing. Here's what happens. Animals are cut in two, and Abram waits for God and falls into a deep sleep. And then God himself comes down and walks between the cut part of the animals while Abram sleeps. What in the world is that all about? Now, before we give an answer, I don't want to just gloss over this episode. I want it to stick in your memory because this is a fascinating picture. And I want it just kind of picture it in your mind as we as you read through Genesis or as you listen to it. God comes to Abram and makes a promise to him in some sort of vision. Now, we got to keep in mind here that Abram did not come from a family of Yahweh followers. Abram's family were not uh, followers of God. He came from a family of polytheists who worshipped many, many, many gods. And we know this from passages like Joshua 24, 2, which says this, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So, much of this about Yahweh, the God of Israel and the God of the Bible, would be just absolutely new to Abram. But Abram believes God, and still believing God, he asked God for some kind of sign or assurance that God was really going to give him this whole land. And this is when God calls for a covenant. He tells Abram to gather together some animals and cut them in half. And Abram does this. I mean, picture that. This disgusting cow, two halves of a cow manually cut in half. I mean, that probably took all day. It's no wonder that Abram falls asleep later. But Abram 
cuts these animals in half and he leaves a path between each side of the animals. And he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. Now, eventually some buzzards or some other bird of prey come by and they try to eat the animal carcasses, but Abram manages to drive them away. And he waits some more and waits some more and waits some more. And again, probably because he's tired from cutting animals and fighting birds all day, he falls into a deep sleep. And that is when God chooses to come down. And my goodness, what a mysterious way he chooses to come down. The Bible says, suddenly great terror and darkness descended on Abram. Wow. And then God, represented by a torch in a smoking fire pot, walks through the animal carcasses to seal the deal, so to speak. What a strange ritual. <laughs> what in the world is this all about? It's like, if you don't understand what's going on here, it's crazy. But this kind of thing did happen in the ancient world. Not Maybe not often, but it did happen. And the good thing is, uh, Jeremiah chapter 34 does give us kind of a clue as to why this strangeness happens. And verse 18, Jeremiah 34, 18 says this, it's God speaking here. As for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut into in order to pass between its pieces. So I said, like I said below, above, a covenant is a big, 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 big deal. Some churches have membership covenants, and I'll just be honest with you, me as a pastor, I am honestly scared to do that with people because a covenant goes far beyond a mere promise, as this incident shows. In ancient times, when the two participants in a covenant slaughtered animals and walked between them, the meaning was clear, viscerally clear, pun intended. If I break this covenant, or you do, may we become as this dead, slaughtered animal, cut in half. So that means a covenant is quite literally a life or death agreement. And I note here again that Abram slept. Only God walked through the animal parts. And I kind of think this is a declaration that God would keep his end of the covenant no matter what Abram's descendants did. And... As he promised, God has done so. He has kept and maintained his covenant with Abram. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase before, to cut a deal. I believe that that phrase etymologically has its origin in this ancient practice. I'm glad we don't cut deals like this anymore. All right, next up for us, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, 
for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder themselves to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the, the, that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there's so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and time again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I had stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at all the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Oh man, that's a good speech. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated us, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half had spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us here. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod, so he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me the John the Baptist's head here on a platter. 
Although the king regretted it, he commanded it that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him in foot on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But, but we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up twelve baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about five thousand men, beside women and children. Immediately... He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came forward toward them while walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe, and as many as touched it were healed. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and their and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet. He'd never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, 
Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are people also, just like you, and we're proclaiming good news to you, that you turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food in your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith, and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a considerable time with the disciples. And I got to tell you something, folks, closing out here. I've got one more word of encouragement from Charles Spurgeon to share with us. But when the guy that was just stoned to death tells you it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, that is a good time to pay attention to that guy. That is powerful. Charles Spurgeon, many years ago, commented on this very passage, and he gave an encouraging word to us that I want to close out with. And he says this, Perseverance is the badge of true saints. The Christian life is not a beginning only in the ways of God, but also a continuance in the same as long as life lasts. He only is a true conqueror and shall be crowned at the last who continues until a war's trumpet is blown no more. Perseverance is therefore the target of all of our spiritual enemies. The world doesn't object, says Spurgeon, to you being a Christian for a short time if she can but tempt you to cease your pilgrimage and settle down to worldly pleasures. The flesh will seek to ensnare you and to prevent your pressing on to glory. It is weary work being a pilgrim. Come, give up. Am I always to be mortified and go through hard times? Am I never to be indulged? Give me at least a break from this constant warfare. 
Satan will make many a fierce attack on your perseverance. It will be the mark or the target for all his arrows. He will strive to hinder you in service. He will insinuate that you're doing no good and that you just need rest. He will endeavor to make you weary of suffering. He will whisper, curse God and die. Or he will attack your, attack your steadfastness. What's the good of being so zealous? Be quiet like the rest. Sleep and relax like the others do. And let your lamp go out as the virgins do. Or he will assail your doctrinal sentiments. Why do you hold on to these creeds? Sensible men are getting more and more liberal. They are removing the old landmarks. Fall in with the times. Wear your shield, says Spurgeon. Christian, therefore, close upon your armor and cry mightily unto God that by his spirit you may endure to the end. That's a good word written all the way back in the 1800s. Thank God for Charles Spurgeon. Thank God for your word. Thank you, friends, for listening to the show. We will be back tomorrow, God willing. Godspeed to you.